invite you to take your Bible this morning to the book of Isaiah, and the classes can go out with Jess if they'd like to. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we read together the first eight verses of Isaiah 6. So please stand with your Bibles. The Word of God says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim was standing above him, each having six wings, with two each covered his face, and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundation of the temples, sorry, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. We trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Loving Father, again we come before you, and we cry out to you, O God, that you would speak and that we would hear. Father, we pray that from every heart in this room, your name and your person would be exalted as we humble ourselves before you. And we ask you these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. If you'd ask me, uh, Nelson, we're going to stick you on a deserted island for the rest of your life. And you get to take, don't smile, it's not that good of an idea. You get to take with you one text, one book, what would it be? I'd probably say the book of Romans, or maybe the book of Hebrews, because that's the entire Bible's message in one book. But if you said to me, Nelson, you get to take one passage of Scripture with you, and that's all you have for the rest of your life, this would probably be it. You've probably heard me say over the years, I have, oh, this is one of my favorite texts, this is one of my favorite verses. This is probably my all-time favorite passage of Scripture. Probably goes back to the day when I was a young man, newly saved, and I heard R.C. Sproul preach on the holiness of God from this text. And the things he said and the, and the, the visions he kind of put in my mind as I listened to him preach have stuck all through the years. The text has much to say to us about God who is to be worshipped and why and how mankind worships God. In this text, we have the glory of God, we have the sinfulness of man, and we have the work of God in grace to save man from his sin and from judgment by God. And we have the commission to go and make it known. It's it's all that we need. 
Praise God, we have the rest of the Bible. I don't mean to imply that we don't need it. We certainly do. If you're here this morning, and you're wondering why, and you're wondering how you got here, some of you may think, I got in my car and drove here. I want you to know, without any hesitation or any doubt in my mind, I believe absolutely in the sovereignty of Almighty God. You are here this morning because God brought you here to hear a message. And that's why I pray so much that you would hear what the Spirit would say and not just the words of a mere man. I'm convinced the Lord God brought us all here to hear a message. Isaiah is within the courts of Solomon's temple near two altars. And Scripture tells us in the book of John chapter 12 and verse 41 that Isaiah saw his glory and the his refers to Christ. He was experiencing what we call a Christophany, meaning a visible manifestation of the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. He was seeing the Lord Jesus. He was seeing the Son of God. We remind ourselves also, the Bible tells us that in John 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. But this little passage of Scripture doesn't occur out in the middle of nowhere all by itself. It sits in a context. So I want you to notice, first of all, the context of worship. You notice what it says in chapter 6 and verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Why would he bring him up here? What's so important about this? We go back to the book of 2 Chronicles 26 and verses 16 to 23, and we see there the story of King Uzziah. Crowned at 16 years of age, he reigned for 52 years in Judah. In his youth, he did right in God's sight, seeking the Lord. He fought the Philistines with God's help. He built towers in Jerusalem. He dug wells for his animals. He prepared arms and armor for his 300,000 plus army. He built machines of war. And the Bible tells us he was marvelously helped by God until he became strong and pride crept in. He went into the temple to burn incense, which was absolutely forbidden for any but the high priest and the priest chosen for that. He was enraged when the priest came running in after him to try and stop him, and he was struck down by leprosy, never to recover. Pride bore disobedience and sin and judgment by God on King Uzziah. God's leader had sinned, and now Uzziah was no longer on the throne. But the reality is, the great truth that we hold on to is God is always on his throne. And so Isaiah comes in to worship. Secondly, we have a context of a sinful people. And you notice that it's chapter 6. We've got five chapters before the call of Isaiah to ministry. And in those passages, we have the sin of the people of God. In chapter 1, Judah's sin is exposed. Their evildoers behaving corruptly. They're despising the Holy One of Israel. They're offering hypocritical, half-hearted worship. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 4, verse 1, Judah's guilt is declared out loud. In chapter 5, Judah's condemnation is lamented with six woes. In verse 8, the first woe to the wealthy who are buying up all the property and adding property to property and pushing people out of their inheritance. In verse 11, the second woe to the drunkards, those who pursue intoxicating drink. 
In verse 18, the third woe to those. And the, the image given here is one who has so much sin in their lives. It's not like John Bunyan's pilgrim where the big load's on his back. It's so much more than that that he has to put it in a cart and pull it along with ropes. So much sin. Verse 21, the fifth woe, sorry, uh, verse 20, the fourth woe, woe to those calling evil good and good evil. Morality, right and wrong, is all completely flipped upside down. Everything is backwards. Kind of reminds us of our day, doesn't it? Very much so. Verse 22, the sixth woe. Sorry, verse, I keep jumping ahead. Verse 21, the fifth woe, woe to those wise in their own eyes, pride like King Uzziah. Verse 22, the sixth woe to the wine-drinking heroes, six out of seven woes in total, all describing a sinful people worshiping in hypocrisy. They're showing up in the temple, they're offering the offerings, they're raising their hands, they're singing the hymns, they're doing everything that they should do to worship the Lord God of Israel, but their hearts are far from God. It's hypocrisy. And thirdly, we have the context of a sinful prophet. Chapter 6 flows out of the context of chapters 1 through 5. In chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah pronounces the seventh woe. Woe woe to me. Woe to me. I'm doomed. I'm to be destroyed. Why? Because I'm a prophet with unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah's own sin is exposed to him by seeing God Almighty. He's been preaching and calling God's people to repentance, but he also needs to repent of his own sin. God requires his servants to be clean vessels for his service and coming into the presence of Almighty God. And there for a few moments, maybe not even a few seconds, he sees the glory of God and he hears the voice And he's terrified because he knows he's a sinner. And he cries out to God, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. And God, as we'll see in grace, comes to deal with his ruin. So the context that Israel came to worship was the sin and failure of Judah's king in pride. The sin and failure of Judah's people in hypocrisy and the sin and failure of Judah's prophet in unclean lips. And perhaps one of those is your context as you've come today to worship. Have you become proud and arrogant, seeing yourself as better, smarter, wiser, stronger than all others? Perhaps you've begun to live the life of a hypocrite living two or even more different lives and personas. I I know it. I did it for years. I developed the habit because when I went into the house of God, the little church we were part of, and listened to the preaching of the word of God, I'd be convicted in my conscience. I got developed this little trick. I'd stare at the preacher's head just about four inches above his head. So everybody looking at me would think I'm, I'm watching and I'm listening, but I was doing everything I could to tune it out, living a hypocritical lifestyle. I kept my Christian mask in a little jar by the door with my unread Bible, and I would slip that mask on, pick up my Bible, and go to church. I discovered years later, 
going back to that church, that some of those dear older folk there saw right through that mask. And they knew what was going on in here. And they were praying for me and pleading with God on my behalf. If you're here and you're living that hypocritical lifestyle, if maybe you're here because you've become a person of unclean lips, not just swearing or, or oaths or cursing, but speaking lies and deceit and gossip and flattery or slander. It's all an expression of unclean lips. And that's the context that Isaiah came to worship in. And I want you to know, if you're one of those three, if that fits your situation, my brother, my sister in Christ, you're in the right place this morning. Because God has brought you here to find forgiveness and cleansing and renewal. There is hope this morning. I want you to notice, secondly, the recipient of our worship. Here again, the, the words of, of Scripture, Isaiah 6, 1-4. The Bible says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The Bible commands us to worship him. It's not an option. It's not a choice. What am I going to do today? Eh, I could do this or that. I'll go to church. No, no, no. The Bible makes it absolutely clear from Psalm 2, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Psalm 29 and verse 2. Ascribe, give to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. In Psalm 99 and verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And years later, Paul, writing in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he makes one thing absolutely clear. God will get his worship from every person who ever was conceived. At the name of Jesus, he writes, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, the terrible tragedy of that verse is how many will confess it when it's too late. And the call to us is to confess that Jesus Christ is truly Lord today before it's too late. Listen, the only place and activity on the Lord's day for every true believer in Christ who are physically able to do so is to be gathered together with the Lord's people to worship him. As Dyer's description goes on to give us some very compelling reasons why we are to worship God. And you know, one of the joys of this passage, one of the reasons why I've preached on this text probably almost as many times as Psalm 23, the other great text I love to preach from, is because it makes so much of God. It elevates and lifts up God. And so my desire for the next few minutes as you're listening is to see God. If you want, close your eyes and listen and see the Lord through the eyes of faith. We see in verse 1, he is the enthroned Lord. What's he say? 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He did not ever ascend to the throne and he will never descend from it. He has no beginning and no end to his reign. He is a throne from eternity past to eternity future. You want to know why we worship the living God? Because he's enthroned. It is his rightful due for us to worship him. Notice secondly in verse 1 also, he is the exalted God. Lofty and exalted. I love that phrase. I don't know what it is about that phrase. It just lifts my whole vision to see God. He's raised up. He's high. He's the highest in rank and character and status. There is none higher than the Lord our God. In Psalm 95 and verse 3, the Bible says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In Revelation 19 and verse 6, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that he is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I think you could legitimately put the word over in there. So he is the King over all kings and he is the Lord over all lords. He's a lofty, exalted God. He is a glorious, majestic God. He says in verse 3, the second part, the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory having the idea of fame and reputation and honor. It's the weightiness of the significance of God's person. We think about majesty and what do we think of? A rickety old king sitting in a rickety wooden chair with a gold thing on his head and a gold scepter in his hand and some old robes and a bunch of people playing trumpets and people declaring allegiance and not meaning a bit of it. We think of majesty around the crowning of King Charles, don't we? It's nothing. The majesty of any earthly king is like a lump of Aussie clay in the bottom of your boot. You just kind of give it a kick and it's gone. You don't think twice about it. The majesty of our God goes so much further. It's an infinite distance. He is an exalted, glorious king. The Bible says in Psalm 72 and verse 19, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. What a reason to worship the living God this morning. He's a glorious, majestic God. The Bible asks a question several times, who is like the Lord our God? And the answer comes running back, there is no one like the Lord our God. Fourthly, he is the thrice holy God in verse 3. He's not holy and holy times holy. He's holy times holy times holy. It's the greatest emphasis a Hebrew writer can use. Holy meaning pure and separate and set apart and above. Holy meaning God's moral excellence and the perfection of his being. In Psalm, sorry, 1 Samuel 2 verse 2, it's Hannah, I believe, who asks the question or makes the statement, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one besides you. In Exodus 15 and verse 11, Miriam with the women is singing, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And Psalm 77 verse 13 says, your way, O God, is holy. It's not just God's person that's holy. Everything he does is of a holy uh, nature. If we think of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, as the strength of his arm, 
his omniscience or his all-knowingness of the power of his mind. And when we think about holiness, it's the beauty of his face. R.C. Sproul in that sermon made a great point. He said, you know, the, the seraphim don't shout back and forth, love, love, love. Or righteous, righteous, righteous. Or powerful, powerful, powerful. They shout with a voice that shakes the foundations of the temple. Holy, holy, holy. That's the Lord God that we come to worship. He's holy. Notice also he's a sovereign God in verse 3. He is the Lord of hosts. What that means is he's the Lord of armies. Mother Virgin has. It means he's a conquering military leader and a hero. He is the one that leads his armies out and leads his armies in again. And he, in single combat, defeated sin and death, hell and the devil. He is an authority and control over all the hosts and all the armies of all existence. We were in our Bible study on Tuesday night, I think it was, trying to get our head around this. And I said, you think about all the little streams of ants running around, you know? You ever watch a swarm of ants moving? Like a little flood of moving little black bodies. God is in control. God is sovereign over them. He's sovereign over the angels, the demons, and all the armies and hosts of men. Sproul said it like this, if there is one, ma- sorry, if there is one miracle, try again, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. Why do we pray? Why do we plead with God for him to do things? Because he is sovereign and he can answer those prayers. Because he is in authority and control. How is it possible for any mere man to see this glorious God? The Bible tells us in Genesis 16, 13 that Hagar saw the angel of the Lord. In Exodus 24, verse 9, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up on the mountain. They saw the Lord and they ate and drank. In Exodus 33, the Bible tells us that Moses saw the Lord's back parts because as the Lord said, no man may see his face and live. In Judges 6, Gideon saw the angel of the Lord. And in Judges 13, Manoah and his wife saw the angel of the Lord and they were terrified that they were going to die. So how is it possible? John Calvin makes a point that in order for God to deal with men, For his greater purposes, he must in grace and mercy accommodate himself to us. And part of that would be restraining himself from acting in immediate judgment on our sin. In grace, he allowed Isaiah to see him and his glory even for a few seconds, a few moments. You notice in verse 4, even as the seraphim is speaking, the temple is filling up with smoke. And it reminds us of a different time celebrated once a year for the the Old Testament Israel. When the high priest went behind the veil, he burned incense. And what he would do, if you don't know this, is he would take incense in one hand and the blood in the other hand. And he would put a censer with a chain on it. And he would put that chain in his mouth. And the censer would hang down just about here on his chest. And as he would take the blood and the incense and he would walk behind the veil, as he would sort of push his way through the veil, he would reach up and he would crumble that incense onto the burning coals and smoke would rise in front of his face, lest he see the Shekinah of God's glory and die. It's the same idea here. The smoke is filling the place. And so what Isaiah saw was momentary. 
Beloved, our God is the sole object and recipient of our worship. God commands our worship because he alone is worthy of it. For God to allow us to worship anything other than God would be for him to allow us to commit idolatry. John Piper said it like this. This is summarizing his words, sorry. For God to allow us to worship any other but him would be to allow us to value most highly that which is not most valuable. And God is a righteous God. Therefore, he rightly commands that we worship him. There is no God like our God, beloved. None. He is not Allah of the Muslim. He is the Lord God Almighty. And brothers and sisters, we've come into this place with the the unimaginable privilege of worshiping a God like our God, the only God like our God. God is the only worthy recipient of our worship because he is enthroned eternally. He's exalted above all others. He is majestic and glorious like no other. He is most holy. He's sovereign over all existence. And beyond what this text says, he's unchangeable in his person, his power, and his promises. He's all-powerful to accomplish all he desires or ordains. He's all-knowing of all things, past, present, future, possible, and actual. He's everywhere present at all times, and he is gracious and merciful to us. Beloved, I urge you, with all I've got in me, behold the Lord your God. See his glory in the face of Christ, and hear of his glory in the words of the seraphim. Listen, my brothers and my sisters, with the Lord our God, there's no fear that he cannot quieten or remove. There's no problem that he cannot handle, no sickness that he cannot cure, no trouble or calamity that he cannot rescue us from. And aside from unbelief, which is pride and stubbornness, there is no sin he cannot forgive. A problem is, I've been saying this, I thought about last night, I've been saying this for the better part of 30 years. Our great problem is our view of God is too small. He is infinitely greater than our greatest estimation of God. If you in your mind, let your mind go and start thinking about how great and how majestic and how awesome and glorious God is, no matter how great you can make it think of, he's infinitely greater. He's infinitely greater than our greatest problem, which is sin which he alone dealt with, because he's the only one that could. Beloved, we came here this morning to worship, to exalt, to magnify, to glorify God most high, because he alone is worthy of our worship. So first, there is the context of our worship, and second, there is the recipient of our worship, and thirdly, there is the expression of our worship. Isaiah came into the temple to worship. In verse 1, he saw the Lord. In verse 3, he heard the seraphim. In verse 5, he lamented his condition. In verse 6, he confessed his sin. And in verse 7, he received God's grace in forgiveness. And in verse 8, he responded to God's call. And every one of those is a form, an expression of worship before the living God. 
All of those actions, all those, those speaking, everything is worship there. The fundamental idea of worship is both to exalt God and humble self. In Psalm 95 and verse 6, we're commanded, come, let us worship and bow down. In other words, exalt God with our voice and bow on our knees. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The verse finishes. Jerry Bridges, describing worship, said it like this. Worship is the glorifying of God by ascribing to him the glory he deserves and by reflecting his glory to others. Esau Macaulay, scholar, biblical scholar, put it like this. Worship I love this. Worship is the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. Isn't that great? I'll read it again. Worship is the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. We've come to worship a holy God, a majestic God. An all-powerful, all-knowing, unchangeable God who is magnificent. There is no one like the Lord our God. Isaiah came to the temple, assuming as nearly all scholars do that he is in Solomon's temple. He came into the presence of God with a purpose to worship him. And worship cost him something. Because worship will always cost us something. It's the giving up of something that's important to us also to come together with God's people and worship. We're called by God through scripture to come and worship because it exalts God as worthy of my costly obedience. It humbles me as I submit to God's command. And in so doing, beloved, we know great joy. Secondly, as he saw the Christophany and he felt the foundations, Isaiah heard God's word from the seraphim. And he was confronted with the truth of the holiness of God Most High. To worship is to hear and listen and receive God's word. The primary and central part of worship is preaching. We make a mistake if we sort of think, well, singing is the worship part of the service and the preaching is the boring part of the service. Sometimes there might be some truth to that, but that's not the way God designed it. Preaching is a central part of worship. You know why? Because in preaching, God's truth is declared to God's people. And by God's Holy Spirit, we hear, we receive, and we respond. To worship is to hear and listen and receive God's word. Isaiah worshiped as he heard the truth ringing in his ears. And hearing God's word exalts God as we recognize that his word is true and it's speaking to our very hearts. And it humbles me as I see myself in light of it. And in so doing, beloved, we know great joy. Joy like no other. Thirdly, Isaiah lamented his condition. Confronted with the absolute holiness of God, he realized his condition and state before God. And he said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Literally, the idea of those words means, I am to be destroyed. In Ephesians 2, we have the idea that we are children of wrath, meaning left to ourselves, we have one ending, and that's the wrath of God. And Isaiah said, woe is me. By the way, 
I do not think he was standing there. I think he was curled up in a ball with his hands over his head and he just cried out underneath his hands, woe is me. His lament was a form of worship. It exalted God as righteous and holy and upright. It exalted God by declaring him as king and sovereign. Notice the argument he makes. Woe to me in verse 5, the first part, for I am ruined at the end. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, confronted with the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God. He knew his condition. Lamenting our condition humbles us as condemned already before God. It humbles me before God as fit only for God's destruction. If God does not act, we have no hope. But praise God, he does. Isaiah confessed his sin fourthly. He said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. His confession was a form of worship because it's an agreement, it's an acknowledgement before God that God is in the right and I am in the wrong. My confession exalts God as righteous. My confession humbles me as the unclean and the guilty, and God is already at work. I think as he was sitting there on the ground and he was, he was saying those things, the, the seraphim, one of them had stopped saying what he was saying and, and flown across and grabbed the coal from the altar. God's grace was already being poured out on Isaiah. The seraph dispatched by God paused in his declaration and took that coal from the altar. And the wonderful truth about this, where do we see Christ in the passage? The altar, the burning altar and the coal on it. The animals brought steadily day by day in that place, taken, killed, skin, blood drained, put up on the altar and burnt up before God. It all preached a great message to both God and man in that moment. It preached a message that one day he will come. One day the Son of God will come. Truly God and truly man. And John the Baptist, seeing him as he walked down the coast on the The sand, if you like, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that coal which was burnt was burnt in the fire on that altar. And that fire pictures the wrath of God and what Christ endured for us. And the value of that sacrifice was applied to Isaiah. And God, knowing what Christ would do in a day to come, applied the value of that sacrifice to Isaiah. And what did he say? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. Beloved, The Lord Jesus Christ came as the Lamb of God. He came and he endured the fire of God's wrath on a cross. Christ completely and totally satisfied God's anger and removed it. That's what atonement means. Christ's given body and shed blood alone is able to atone and forgive sin. And when God saw the animal on the altar that day, he remembered that Christ would one day die for all his people. And so God cleansed Isaiah and forgave his sin. What a tremendous picture of the gospel. Oh, beloved, we have come to worship 
We've come to exalt the Lord our God and we worship not just as we sing the songs and pray the prayers. We worship as we lament our condition before God. We worship as we confess our sin to God. We worship as we receive God's grace for forgiveness and we worship as we take his good news to others. And next week, Marcel's coming to talk about taking the good news of God to others. But as we close... And we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. I have to ask, what is the state of our hearts before God this morning? What sin have you allowed to take root in your life? Perhaps like Uzziah, it's stubborn pride. It's arrogance. You've come to see yourself as better and higher and wiser and more godly and more spiritual than all others. And pride has blinded your eyes to seeing what you truly are. That sin will hinder your walk with God and tear apart your fellowship with your brothers and your sisters. Behold. Behold the glory of the holiness of God Most High. Lament and confess and cry to God for forgiveness and trust Him. As the work of Christ is applied to you, there is indeed forgiveness. Perhaps like the people of Judah, it's hypocrisy. Your real character is kept carefully hidden away from your church and Christian friends. You can come and sing the songs and pray the prayers and listen to the sermon like I did and partake of communion and talk of all the things of God. But in reality, your heart is far from God. I can tell you with an absolute certainty from being there, ultimately the cracks will appear and the mask will fall. I know. It's happened to me. Behold the glory of the holiness of God. Lament your condition and confess to God what you truly are and cry to him for forgiveness. That's the message for you today. Perhaps like the prophet of Judah in its unclean lips, you've come to deal not in truth, but innuendo and half-truths and lies like gossip and slander and flattery, but not in truth. Brother and sister, I assure you, that will tear apart your fellowship with your brothers and sisters. That will hinder your walk with God. will ruin your soul. And the message for you this morning, the message for us, for all of us, is behold the glory of the holiness of the living God. Lament your sin. Confess it to God and cry out to him for forgiveness. Because the Bible is absolutely sure and true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promised. And God who cannot lie has to keep his promises. And he does. I want us to take some time to reflect and respond to God each in our own hearts before we remember God, remember the Lord in the sharing of communion together. The Bible tells us this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to 30, that a man must examine himself 
and so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So I, I plead with us all, take a moment, take as long as it need to, to reflect on what you've just heard and respond to God in your own heart. And then we'll come and remember the Lord and after that we'll sing the last song. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, my mind was taken back to that scene in the boat as Peter and the Lord Jesus were there together. And Peter, in that moment, recognized who the Lord Jesus was and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Father in heaven, I give thanks. We thank you, O God, this day that you did not depart from us. But the Lord Jesus Christ stayed living and walking and talking and healing and cleansing lepers, raising the dead, calming the sea. But the greatest trouble and calamity that he conquered was when he went to the cross. And there he conquered sin and death. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Father, I plead with you on behalf of every person in this room. Father, I pray that you would do a work in each of us. Lord, there are things in our lives, all of our lives, that need to be dealt with and put right. 
Father, I plead with you. Give us no rest. Do not allow us to walk away, O God. But hold on to us until we come in confession and repentance and faith. Father, we ask you for your blessing. And we ask these things in the precious name of our Savior and our Lord. Amen.